settling in. Good morning, everybody. Nice to see you all here. And welcome to um, the November event of the Buddhist Chaplaincy Speaker Series. Um, this morning, I'm delighted to welcome Pamela Ayo Yatunde joining us today. Um, Ayo is a community Dharma leader, a Zen student, a chaplain, a pastoral counselor, and a pastoral care instructor. She is the principal co-founder and editor-in-chief of the Buddhist Justice Reporter. And she's also the author of the book, Casting Indra's Net, Fostering Spiritual Kinship and Community. She is also the co-editor of the book, Black and Buddhist, What Buddhism Can Teach Us About Race, Resilience, Transformation and Freedom, as well as other books and articles. She is an associate editor, editor with Lion's Roar. Right now, Ayo is also working on a novella and a film project called Birdsong. And Ayo is a former participant of the Sati Center's Buddhist chaplaincy training from, we think, right, Ayo 2003 to 2004. So really one of the first to go through the program, probably in its second or third year. So Ayo, good morning and welcome. Good morning. Thank you. I'll pass it over to you. Okay, Vanessa, thank you. Uh, first, I want to say thank you, Vanessa, for inviting me to uh, be a part of, of this conversation. Uh, and thank you for the work that you've done to further the, I guess you say, the good word, the mission. Okay, so uh, the view just changed. I want to change it so I'm not looking at myself. If possible. Can I do that? I just tried to hide my view, the view of myself and it didn't work. Oh, didn't work. I can, can do you this. Put it on gallery, gallery view. Does that work? I just removed the spotlight. Okay. Okay. Good. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this is the, now you can see this is the mood I'm in right now. Okay. I'm silly. I'm kind of, uh, I don't know, loopy too. I'll explain that in a moment, but I was expressing my gratitude to Vanessa. Um, and to Sati Center for, um, for just continuing this work. Uh, it's been decades. Well, some would say it's been centuries, right? It's been centuries, um, across continents and now in this form and also open to the public, whether you identify as Buddhist, Buddhist practitioner or not. And that's the beauty of, um, of the vow, if you will, the practices and generosity and non-discrimination that everybody's welcome and everyone can uh, potentially benefit from these teachings. So thank you, Vanessa. And thank you for uh, to Sati for uh, allowing me to be taught years ago, uh, almost two decades ago um, by Jennifer and Gil, Paul and Diana Lyon. So uh, here we are, here we are. And I see some familiar faces that always makes me feel comfortable. So good to see you all. And uh, also, I want to say, I want to start by saying that um, 
I, uh, uh, over these last several years, have come to the conclusion that we need to treat each other as as the kinfolk who we are to each other, that we are related to one another, that we um, can be uh, adopted family informally to each other if we choose to be. And I think um, the recent events um, show us the consequences of when we begin to um, not recognize each other for the kinship uh, that we can have with each other, it can have um, very dangerous consequences. So I'm going to talk to y'all like family. Talk to me like you are family to me. And hopefully we'll have a, a good time with each other. So uh, what else? Prefer- prefatory marks do I want to make? Mm. Okay, I'm tired. <laughs> I'm coming in. I'm going to be real. I'm tired. I'm tired because I've had the most extraordinary month. Starting on October 5th, I went to Portugal, had a wonderful time, spent 10 days there for vacation. Came back, had two days in Chicago where I live, and then left for New York City uh, to co-lead a Zen retreat. Was there, I think, four nights, three or four nights then left and went to Norfolk, Virginia um, to celebrate my father-in-law's 80th birthday party. Was there for two nights. Then went to Boston um, to speak at Harvard Divinity School with um, uh, the former mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, and then back to Chicago where I've been for a week. Yesterday, I gave an online presentation uh, for Stanford University's a contemplation by design event. So can you resonate with me when I say that I'm tired? Yeah. And I've been talking a lot. All right. Thank you. So hopefully with your resonance, you will also give me grace and um, accept the invitation that I'm going to offer you right now, which is to be in conversation with me very early on. So I'm not just going to talk at you. All right. I want to be in conversation with you. All right. Thank you for that. I told Vanessa that the the subject of uh, the presentation or talk today would be right listening, the chaplain's empathic stethoscope. And I want to say a little bit about where this concept of right listening came from recently. As you can probably tell if you've been paying attention to world events, uh, especially in the United States, I don't know about other places, but especially in the United States, we don't put a value on listening. Would you agree? Yeah. The people, yeah, the people who are supposedly the exemplars of how we can be and who we can be and what we need to be um, for our collective survival, if you will are not showing the value of deep listening to each other. This really struck me when I was watching the first, um, okay, I already told you I was loopy and tired. (laughs) That means I have memory loss too. Um, The first uh, trial that Trump was put on, uh, was put on the, the first one, what's that called? Somebody tell me, what is that called? Impeachment, the impeachment. Yes, the first impeachment. I don't know if you all watched that. 
But basically you had people on two sides, right? Two parties. They would come forward. They would uh, read their statement for a minute or two, something like that. Then the person from the other party would do the same thing. And there was never any, in my view, I never saw an indication that of someone saying, you know what? I heard you. And now I'm going to change my statement. Or I never thought of it that way. Let me reflect more deeply on the position I was in. Um, And I I watched the whole thing and I felt exhausted by the end of it because there was the lack of dialogue. There was no one seemingly willing to change their view about anything. And so this has, that's just one mm, symptom of the problem. But as we can see, the more, if you're paying attention, this unwillingness to listen to each other is just deepening and deepening and deepening to such an extent that it is part of our culture. To listen to another, I guess, means that we are weak, um, that we're not convinced of our beliefs, our positions, um, that we are the enemy if we listen to someone else who has a different position. Um, and the arrogance and narcissism and all that uh, and ignorance, that's all part of that. Uh, this is very dangerous. It's very dangerous to not listen to others because how will we know what decisions to make if we're only relying on our own knowledge, if if you want to call it knowledge? So I've been reflecting on these things and uh, reflecting on spiritual care and what that means, um, how to offer it in these times. And I was thinking about the Noble Eightfold Path and I thought, you know, as I'm thinking about it, uh, as it has been offered to me and as it is um, conservatively constructed, I'll put it in terms of con- being conservative, maybe foundational, the foundation of it um, on its face does not appear to be relational. The noble eightfold path, as it is presented, usually is about our own Liberation, if you will, our own relief from suffering, the things that we need to do as individuals to experience nirvana, enlightenment, and so on. And I thought, hmm, is it possible that the Noble Eightfold Path could be used as an inspiration to think about listening as a path to the relief of suffering? Not only our own relief, but the relief of those we work with. And then I started thinking, well, what would it mean to engage in right listening as a path factor? Right listening. So um, at this moment, I would like then to invite anyone who wants to jump in to say something about your thoughts about what it means to listen, what you experience when you listen, how you choose who you're going to listen to, what you're listening for, what impact it has on you. And if you want, 
anything else, okay? Anything else that comes up for you, but also what is the listening that you feel you need to do to do the work that you're doing in offering uh, Buddhist care or spiritual care or presence, however you define it? And so if you want to, I don't know what your method is. Is it showing hands, Vanessa? Okay. All right. So I see Sylvia's already, even before we knew exactly what to do, Sylvie knew what to do. All right, Sylvie. Hi, Pamela. Um, I actually attended your talk at Stanford yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's why I'm, I'm ready. I'm eager. <laughs> um, but I was very curious about the, the listen up practice that you shared yesterday with eight step. And then I realized you're speaking today about the eightfold path. Do, does that kind of like relate? And are you going to share that today? Because I felt it was very powerful. Ah, uh, Sylvie, thank you. So Sylvie has exposed me. Okay. Oh, sorry. It's okay. It's okay. I'm not, I'm not mad at you. I'm just letting you know that you've exposed me now. So yesterday in a more secular setting context, I refer to this as listen up, listen upward practice. As a, in a Buddhist context, I'm calling it right listening. And Sylvie is the same thing. Oh, and then the answer to your, the second part of your question is, yes, we're going to talk more about that today. And I'm hoping actually that people will, that we might co-create something together. Yeah, that's what I'm hoping for. Other thoughts, questions, comments? Concerns. I know you've been listening to people, so you can't say I don't know anything about listening. So I'll just wait. Heidi. Hey, Heidi, can you unmute yourself? Sorry, forgot the two buttons. <laughs> um, yeah, many steps, many steps. <laughs> um, I think sometimes when I listen and even like in a text message, right? When somebody writes something, I see myself in it. And what I, for right listening, what I hear just now, like on, on the spot of trying to not attach myself to what that person is sharing. Mm -hmm. Right. So those words, just seeing it, that's the person sharing those words it has nothing to do with, my, you know, we could say judgment or my story or, you know, those things to fully just see what that person has shared in those words. Mm. It's not a reflection of me. It's a reflection of them. Oh, Heidi. Okay. Thank you so much for saying that. Can, can I ask you a follow-up question? Mm -hmm. Okay. So I think I heard you say you see yourself in it first. So first you see yourself in the text. That's the um, example you were providing. And then you come to the awareness or you remember that it's, it's not about you. Um, and then you do something to reorient your consciousness around, um, the recognition that it's not about you. Um, do you know what it is that you do? 
to make that possible? Um, I think it depends on different contexts. Like I use the text example, right? And so I think it would be giving it some space of almost not reflecting on it. I try to not think about it. Okay. Um, and then also then like this, I'm working on not clinging, which is a difficult one mm -hmm. at the moment for me, like in, in for different reasons. <laughs> but um, yeah, like not clinging to the defining the vocabulary. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Heidi. Okay, I see another hand. Is it Latessa or Latissa? Latissa, how are hey, you? Hey, Latissa. Good. How are you? Um, I'm well. Good. Um, when I think of right listening, the first thing that comes to mind is right speech. And although right speech really is usually positioned as kind of a list of don'ts, um, I think of those as really being kind of almost like a floor of here's how you how you speak in ways that are not harmful. But that is that's a floor, right? And when I think about really right speech, speech should be ways of being helpful, of being generous. And so you can't do that without right listening. Because right listening is the way that you really enter into a relationship. And if, as you said, it should inform your speech in a way that is helpful and liberative for the person that's hearing. And so that's kind of how I think about the relationship between right speech and right listening. You know, of course, it's our goal not to do harm, but really, as chaplains and as caregivers and as humans, <laughs> our real goal is really to heal each other. Mm. And, and that's that's the way I think about the two. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. So what we're doing, mm, and, and, and thank you, Latisa, and I hope, okay, I see Andrew, I see you too. Um, what we're doing is uh, thinking imaginatively. Yeah. Um, this is uh, what some people call Buddhology. Some people might call it theology. I'll call it Buddhology. We are taking what is written, um, what was written so many years ago, um, passed down, passed around. Um, we have a foundation but we're also using that foundation and applying it um, in ways um, and speaking about it in ways and maybe thinking about it in ways that um, that goes beyond the script, right? It goes beyond what's written. And I find this juicy. So if you find it uh, disrespectful, like, no, 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 there's no right listening. So no, you can't say that. I apologize. This is how I roll. I'm not dogmatic. Um, and I am interested in doctrine. I'm interested in it, but I'm not dogmatic about it. So, okay, Andrew. So um, ideally, I, I feel like uh, listening is, a, is like an act, 
is an active thing, like an active activity that you have to consciously kind of um, tell yourself to do. And for me, that involves um, ideally not spending my time when I'm listening to somebody thinking of what my retort is going to be or what my agenda is or what my reply is going to be, but just like being there present in the activity of hearing what the other person is um, sharing with me. Thank you, Andrew. Ideally. Ideally, I hear you. I, I, I could hear the emphasis that you put on the word a few times. Right, because we're not perfect and we do hear things we don't want to hear. And sometimes the time is not right for us to receive all that someone's bringing. But I go back to the saying that you I'm sure you've heard. That's why they call it a practice. <laughs> we keep doing it. We keep doing it. And we keep doing it. Yeah. Thank you. Is there anyone else who'd like to say anything? Okay, Nancy. Um, thank you. I'm just reflecting on your question. Um, what do you, what do you, well, I'm not sure if I remember correctly, but what do you think you need to listen for? Or how do you need to listen? Um, I just returned from a, a trip where I saw three of my nieces and they're in their, two of them are college students in their 20s and one is in her mid 30s. and. I was just struck by, you know, all the the turmoil in their lives, like the various um, really kind of existential questions that all three of them are facing. And um, wow, I was was just so moved by that. Um, And I kind of, I I went through the chaplaincy program in 2020, the the Zoom year, (laughs) the pandemic year. and I found myself switching into like chaplaincy mode of of listening with them. And for me, that kind of meant like I was listening for things of um, what they were telling me in terms of um, how they've how they've coped with the various um, issues that they faces faced and what they found supportive for them um, so that I could reflect that back to them like, oh, my one niece, uh, she's uh, showed me the church on her college campus, and she said, "I'm not religious, but I believe in my grandmother, who just passed." And so she would go to the church to talk to her grandmother and sometimes cry. And I thought, you know, that's a beautiful way of coping and just like reflecting back to her, like you have this this strength, like see see what you've done. Um, that's come from within to help you, um, you know, meet this, this challenge in your life. And I was kind of, um, you know, thinking like, I don't have the answers for any of them, but maybe I can help them, uh, recognize the sort of strength they have from within, like the ways that they've, you know, learned to cope with, with, um, with, with the various things they're encountering and, um, you know, m- reinforce that or, or mirror that back to them. That's, that's kind of, um, I found myself doing that with these, these three, um, lovely young women. Thank you, Nancy. So Nancy, you said a couple of things that I would like to follow up with you about if you don't mind. Is okay. That okay. Okay. You sure? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
<laughs> um, one of them is, I think I heard you say, as they, as they were talking about the existential challenges they face, you switched into chaplaincy mode. What, what mode were you in before? <laughs> How did you switch? And what does chaplaincy mode look like? Um, so I guess, let's see. I guess the mode I was in before was kind of, um, you know, headspace, like sort of like there's this challenge, um, say infertility, um, and, you know, there's a lot to talk about there with like the medical, you know, issues and what's, you know, wrong or, you know, the various steps in the process. And, you know, there's no explanation for what's, what's been going on. And I kind of realized there's, there's no way forward. There's no solution of trying to figure out like the issue from a, I don't know, analytical frame, like let's, let's analyze <laughs> um, because yeah, there's, there's no explanation for lots of things. Um, and so I guess for me, I was like switching out of maybe that's my usual mode. Like when you're in a conversation, you're kind of, I don't know, grappling with an issue. So you analyze it or, or whatever. Um, and so maybe I was switching out of trying to like grapple with the issue itself to grappling with, um, you know, how my, how my niece had, you know, struggled with this over, I don't know, four or five years and the kind of, um, the isolation that she felt, the, you know, sense of self-worth, the struggles with her, her husband and friends even, um, you know, just trying to, hear her from like the depth of of who she was rather than trying to like let's let's fix this problem um because you know she may or may not uh wind up with the child um so so the issue is more like how to um like how how to come to some sort of space of of ease or strength with the not knowing the uncertainty, um, you know, and with whatever comes to pass. Um, so I guess, I guess that's maybe what I'm, maybe I already just articulated what chaplaincy mode might mean of, mm -hmm. for me of like coming to a space of helping the person see that like an inner strength or, um, helping the person see like what resources they have to come to a space of, of ease or okayness with, with what's going on. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. And then one last question, Nancy, and then uh, I'll, I'll get more <laughs> into uh, fulfilling uh, my promise to Vanessa. Cause I don't, I don't want to not do that, which is given, um, given what we, when we talk about chaplaincy and we talk about, conventional forms. Uh, oftentimes we talk about chaplaincy is in a context, a particular context where there's suffering. 
usually like the hospital, hospice, uh, prison work, long-term care, um, animal shelters, uh, colleges, and so on. After or during, or maybe just at the beginning of the uh, pandemic, I began to think about the sickness in the world and that these contexts can't contain all the sickness, all the illness, all the suffering in this world. So my question to you, Nancy, and for actually for all of us is, given what we know about the suffering in the world now, do you define chap yourself as a chaplain slash spiritual caregiver, Buddhist caregiver, witness to the suffering, presence, whatever? Is it limited to a particular context? Or do you see yourself in the world of suffering as leaning into this particular mode of listening more frequently? Um, yeah, I would say it's um, it's not limited to, to a certain context because as you said, there's suffering everywhere. Um, and you don't have to go to a hospital or a prison to find it, although you will find suffering there too. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, I think it is a mode of listening that uh, I'd like to think that I'm leaning into <laughs> when I remember. Um, yeah, I, I think I'd like to remember to lean into it more. Okay. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you so much. Yeah. And thank, and thank all of you for uh, jumping in very early on into this presentation, um, not knowing where we're going <laughs> or, or exactly what we're doing. Uh, thank you for uh, trusting this space enough to just jump in. So uh, I have been thinking about listening, thinking about it, thinking about suffering, thinking about my own commitments. Like, how do I want to be in the world right now? Uh, there's so much, so much going on. Um what gets reported, obviously, is that what sell is which you know what sells is what gets reported, generally speaking, in this country, um, and all the many acts of kindness and love and peace, um, people don't want to buy that for some reason, right? Um, so it doesn't get reported very much, unless it's like seen as an exception, you know, the the uh, Good Samaritan right, who heroically uh, rescues someone from the car. And then that's put at the end of the news report, right? See, after all this murder, after all these mass shootings, after all this war, after all this poverty, there's still one person here who did something good. But I do believe that throughout the world, most of us are doing good things unseen, unknown, unreported. We're not talking about it. Um, and I think that's truly how the world is. And I also know that these acts of violence, uh, the mm, turn away from 
embracing what is true is so destructive that maybe individual acts of kindness are not enough to reverse the the tide that we're on now. Back to not listening to each other. If our exemplars, our leaders are examples of devaluing listening, where will we find the inspiration to listen? Where will we find that? And one of the things that I've loved about Buddhist practice is the teachings around uh, cultivating uh, one's inner resources, talking about resources, Nancy, one's inner resources um, to be that exemplar for ourselves, if you will, uh, to keep reaching inside uh, and utilizing the wisdom of these practices to be that person who is attending to the suffering of others, listening very deeply to the depths. I think that was a word you used, Nancy. I think that's what I wrote that down. Um, listening uh, deep into the depths of, of someone and then mirroring um, back to them their strengths. And I'll add our, our confidence in their ability to abide with not knowing. So I'm experimenting with contemplating on right listening and the Noble Eightfold Path as an inspiration for um, uh, exploring listening practices. So one of the things that I learned uh, as a Sati student was to, and I I wonder if y'all are doing this now, um, is give a Dharma talk to a Buddhist audience and give virtually the same talk to a non-Buddhist audience. I don't know if you've done that yet or will, Um, but I think it's a great thing to do, to be able to flex, right? To not lose your audience because uh, they don't identify with um, how you're identifying or the words you're using. I don't always get it right. Often I get it wrong. In a group, you just don't know how people are identifying. You don't know. It's risky, right? Um, But this is something new I'm working on. So how to talk about the Noble Eightfold Path as an inspiration to listening more deeply and calling that listen up. I don't know if anybody from, from my generation ever said to you, listen up now. No, listen up. Okay. And when someone said that to me, it's like, oh, okay, you've got my attention. And now I'm listening. Or to talk talk about it as right listening in a Buddhist context, right? So these are some of the things that I am thinking about. And I'm looking at the time to see how much of your input I can get on these things. And I may already have received the input you want to offer just from your, from your own practice and what you've already shared. So here's the first, here's the first one. And I call it listen upward. Embedded in this thought of listening upward is that what's in the depths will arise. It may not arise in the moment, but maybe it will arise at some point. 
But if I listen well, perceived to be a deep listener, use right speech wisely, maybe over time, what is underneath the surface will rise up through listening up. So in Buddhism, this is my understanding, and we can have a conversation about it, okay? I'll go through this quickly. In Buddhism, much of our suffering is based in narcissism. Sometimes we call it self or selfing. From a Western point of view, we call it narcissism. Um, So I think the very act of truly listening to another is like self-forgetting, right? It's like you see that text, you see yourself in it, you recognize you see yourself in it, right? Like we were talking about Heidi, and then you remove yourself. It's this type of listening is a form of selflessness, right? And I feel on some level, selflessness is in itself liberatory, is you're not so focused on you and not focused on your own story and not focused on your own suffering, right? Two, when we listen upward, we do so having removed the intention to hear what we want to hear. Oh, how many of us listen to the only the things we want to hear? Right? But should we hear what we don't want to hear? And that's life. We are going to hear what we don't want to hear, right? We recognize through mindfulness practices that we have this desire to hear something else, to hear what we want to hear. But we refrain or we try to refrain from judging ourselves for having that desire. Yeah. So we're not putting that second arrow in, right? Then we reattune to what, to the person and to what is actually being said, while also resisting the dynamic or the intention or the desire to reinterpret what someone is saying so that we can hear what we want to hear. It's hard to do, can be done through practice. Three, by forming the intention to listen, to engage in right listening and be perceived as someone who's engaged in that deep level of listening, the person who is communicating has a much better chance of experiencing a sense of belonging. This to me is critical. I, I, you know, I told you from the very beginning, we're going to talk like family. Well, at least I'm going to talk like family to you. We belong to each other. We belong to each other. And there's so many people experiencing the suffering of alienation and isolation. They don't know to whom they belong. But if we listen deeply like this, they may get a sense, they may get a taste. Mm, At least in this moment, I belong to this person. And what they do with that moment Who knows? But we can encourage them to take that feeling, right? Take that feeling to the next interaction you have. Do that. We are practicing, uh, in Buddhism, we are practicing what is real, true, authentic, right, ethical. So we're not trying to control another person's perception 
of us as the listener. We're not trying to control that. Um, but if they experience that from us, um, who's to say that's not the beginning of, of a beneficial relationship? Let's see. Patience. Oh, I know myself and I know many other people struggle with patience. And when it comes to listening, oh, <laughs> I remember um, there have been at least a few times where people said to me, oh, you work in hospice or you're doing hospice volunteer, you know, volunteer work or you're a chaplain or whatever. You must be a special kind of person to do that. You have to be a special kind of person. Like, I don't I don't think so. I think training is helpful. And I don't think training makes one a different person, especially not a special person. But I think what they're really getting it at is, I don't want to hear that. I can't handle that. That's too much suffering to bear. I don't want to take on other people's stuff. At the same time, so many people, people I believe, generally speaking, have been patient with us. Right? We have been the benefactor, the beneficiaries of other people's patience. So if we can remember that and say, oh, you know what? I, I want other people to experience that too. Yeah. That we can begin to practice and cultivate patience. Um, now, the question invariably comes up, well, what if a person's going on and on and on and on and they're talking about the same thing over and over and over again? And they're not doing anything to solve their problems, but they just keep talking to me about it. Right speech practices. Yeah. Reflecting back. Like, you know what? By the way, this is the this is not to be a, 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 um, a fail-safe measure, because everybody needs to use their own judgment about what is appropriate in a conversation. But, you know, just to say, you know what, um, this issue that you have um, raised a few times, I think it must be really important to you. The reason why you, you're raising it. Chances are they'll say, yeah, it is important to me. Yeah. Um, why do you think it's it's something that you raise over and over again? Well, because I, I'm confused or I don't know what to do or so, such and such. Okay. All right. What's getting in the way of you uh, arriving at some clarity about it? Hmm. See, a, an intervention, I'm putting that in quotation marks, an intervention like that keeps you in the conversation. Right. Helps you deepen your curiosity, helps you get into the depth of um, that person's consciousness, their being. And in doing that, you've got a greater chance of, of staying in that conversation with them rather than um, having the dialogue within your minds like, I cannot wait to get out of this conversation. Oh, I wish I could just look at my watch right now and say, you know what? <laughs> it just so happens I've got to go. Right. I see that Diane has raised Diane's hand. Do you want to ask your question now, Diane? Please unmute yourself. Um, you. if, that, if that's not interrupting your stream. It's fine. Okay. Please. I was just um, 
I appreciated what you were just saying about how to interact with people who are kind of going on and on. And I, I had a question about that with um, a close friend of mine whose mom has dementia and um, my friend is really managing quite a lot and, and she just spins and spins and spins and spins and which is kind of how she is in general. When I've tried to interject and say like, just what you were saying, like, wow, this is really obviously a concern. You know, when I try in any way to help her pause <laughs> and tap into anything, she gets quite, you know, perturbed with me. She gets kind of annoyed with me. Mm-hmm. Like she, she has a pretty big need to spin for a very long time and, and is resistant to being asked or invited to just like pause or take a breath or feel into what's really most upsetting for her. So I wondered if you had any um, strategies for, for when somebody's spinning and really kind of attached to it. <laughs> mm. Well, as someone who spins a lot and gets attached to the ways that I spin. Me too. Exactly. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> this is, I'm not offering a strategy, Diane. I'll just say that for me, one of the things I've learned is that when I'm doing that, it's because I haven't spoken my truth to the person who I need to speak it to. Um, and so there might be a question there. You know, is there something that you feel you need to say to someone about this topic? Mm-hmm. Um, and also it could be the fact that there's nothing that you could say, mm-hmm. right, that would be... um that would be perceived and understood as supportive. Mm-hmm. And so there's that too. And then we all make decisions about how much time and effort um, we are going to um, offer someone. Um, and you may make it, you may make an assessment that um, really the best thing you can do, the most supportive thing you can do is just receive that over and over again. Yeah. Actually, as you were speaking, I thought, oh, I could just ask, like, how can I be most supportive? I can, you know, what's the most supportive thing for you while you're working this through? Because, you know, it's a situation that's not going to go away. Her mom has dementia and it's super overwhelming. So Mm -hmm. just even, you know, saying, I'm hearing a lot of the details and I'm wondering what, what would be the most support, what would support you the most. Right. So that- and, then, and then Diane, <laughs> you have a decision to make and we all do. Is that something that we want to do? Right. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, Diane. I'll just finish up uh, so that we have time for more questions. Okay. So let's see, where was I? Mm-hmm. Listening upward involves right speech. And we talked about that before, uh, which means no unnecessary interruptions and no imposition of our own story to minimize or maximize another person's story. Yeah. Um, Listening upward means paying attention to another's suffering, whether it is in the narrative, the body, or a combination thereof. Um, And sometimes, and you know this, you know this because you've done it, because human beings do this. Uh, we tell a story um, differently with our body 
than the words and they don't always match up, right? And that is the case with all of us. Um, and so this kind of listening uh, helps, I hope, helps prepare us to hold um, the complexity, the confusion, the frustration that arises naturally when we were, are with people, when we're trying to listen for what's actually being told here. Okay. And then uh, let's see. Yeah. Listening upwards is a practice that incorporates what I call the fruits of the fruits of mindfulness and meditation. And these fruits um, can help us be a non-anxious presence uh, to the person communicating with us. And then lastly, and here's the here's the prize in case you were wondering, is there anything good coming out of this for me? <laughs> this is what I think. Listening upwards can contribute to the goodies in Buddhism. The goodies are enlightenment, right? The goodies are enlightenment um, because it oh, aids in our awareness of our interconnection. So. I will leave it there for now. This is a work in progress. I don't know if it's um, real or not. That's for us to determine together. Um, but that's what listening upwards and right listening, uh, I believe, is about. And it's not complete. Uh, Sylvie. Yes, um, I was curious um when you share those steps, I think I missed the number. I missed one number, but it's okay. I was wondering if when you said you compare it to the eightfold path, mm -hmm. would you actually match each factor? You know, I think you alluded to right speech. Do you have one for right effort? Do you have one for right intention? Are they actually aligned to the eight steps that the you know, the Buddha highlighted or in your mind? Yeah, I would say, Sylvia, that's a good question. I would say on the most superficial level, yes. But on a deeper level, no. Okay. No. Um, I've, I became convinced some time ago uh, when studying in the Plum Village tradition that you can enter any of these path factors and when you do and you enter them deeply, you will be touching on all the others, mm -hmm. right? So that you don't have to start with one or seven or eight or three. It's just start, as Pema Children would say, start where you are and go from there. So it's you see this as kind of eight steps that um, in your own practice, um, are complementary to make you uh, a good listener mm. and uh, help, um, you know, possibly alleviate the suffering you could fall into by in the presence of suffering and alleviate uh, or hold the suffering of the other person. My thinking at this moment is that uh, I'm developing thoughts. Uh, I intend to put it into practice in, ex in experimental ways that when I reflect on the conversation today, I will have more to think about. I may articulate something differently or the same, 
And there might be 10 steps. I don't know. <laughs> but so that's why I say, Sylvie, that it's inspired by the Noble Eightfold Path. And yes. my attempt is not to compare, but to basically to say, especially in these times, I do believe that um, that these practices that have supported our individual being that we could bring our imagination to these to these more individual practices and ask ourselves how might this be applied communally yes um i i resonate with you because um i do this in in my work so i'm thinking imagi- imaginatively like you to mm-hmm. bring my understanding of the path and mindfulness to uh, transform how doctors are uh, attending to patients. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank and, you. Uh, Thank you for doing that. I, I completely, uh, I see where, where, you're, where you're coming from. And I can see that in each of the steps that you mentioned, they're all inspired by the practice. That's, that's what you are meaning, right? That's what I'm meaning. Yes. Yeah. It's beautiful. And Sylvie, thank you. I, my hope, and this is, and so this is part of the experimentation. Does this relieve my suffering too, as the listener? Yeah. Right. You, you're a doctor. uh, So, you know, and other people who are in healthcare professions know it's demanding. It's so demanding. It breaks my heart when I hear, and I have heard very recently the number of doctors who have taken their own lives. Um, I know that that goes against the Hippocratic oath that goes against everything that they've worked for. So, you know, the suffering must be so intense, so intense. So is there a way that we can be with each other that relieves our suffering simultaneously that's what I want to know. Yeah, that's um, that's what I'm working on, and I actually got some good results. Love to spot, connect with you later. Ooh. Please, please, please follow <laughs> yeah. up. Please, thank you, Sylvie. Two more questions, Nancy and Liam. Hi, Aya. Um, thank you so much for your wonderful book with Cheryl. Learned so much from it. Thank you. So, a couple of. Uh, Quick things. I just wanted to um, make a quick comment about an experience that I had in which I felt like a chaplain was healing me unexpectedly and then ask you a question. Is that okay? Sure. We have three okay, so, and then and Liam has something that Liam wants. Okay, so I'll try to be quick. So yesterday I was in a phone call with a chaplain at um, Boston Medical Center, which is the public hospital here in Boston where I was being um, basically interviewed to see if I might be a good match for working um, with patients there, which I would love to do. And this guy who's a chaplain, not Buddhist, he's an Anglican guy, and he kept saying to me in the most gentle way, is there anything more that you want to say? Is there anything more that you want to say? And I found myself telling this guy about stuff that had happened to me in my childhood. I <laughs> like, because he was just such a beautiful and invitational presence. 
And he like really wanted to find out about me. And this is was his way of kind of, I think, finding out about, in his view, whether I might be a good match. It was just extraordinary. Is there anything more that you'd like to tell me? And I'm like, oh, my God, this man is amazing. Anyway, so I wanted to share that and see if you had any comment on it. And the other quick thing was I came in a little late for various reasons, but I thought I heard you say that one of your um, well, rules of thumb is a very clumsy way of putting any kind of Buddhist thing. So please forgive my clumsy language, but not reinterpreting what someone says. Did you say that? Did. Okay. So my, you know, thing all my life and going to through various degrees, programs and PhDs and all that stuff. It's all about interpreting. That's what I'm so trained to do is interpret. And I feel like no matter how kind and open I, you know, intend to be, I'm usually very busy interpreting because that's what I've been trained to do. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to, so I think your idea is brilliant, but I think I'm very poorly schooled in that. Because of all my other schooling. We have to unlearn a lot of things. And I'll just say in in short, because Liam is waiting. Yeah. uh, In short, thank you for sharing that. Is there anything else you would like to share? That's that's beautiful. Um, And also, uh, I'm not saying, Nancy, that you need to unlearn the skills that you have learned. But uh, in this practice, uh, there may be things that all of us need to unlearn. Yeah, I get it. And begin to trust that someone can tell their story if we listen deeply and can tell their truth without us having to say, oh, this is what you really mean. Yeah, but we don't have time to get into it because I've also been trained in that way, Nancy, as well. I know you have. Thank you. Liam, last word. Oh, thank you. Um, great talk, Aya. Thanks so much. Um, I did something... Um, that Gil had said yesterday in his meditation and talk about making um, oneself a refuge for others really resonates with what you're, at least for me, um, somehow that really connects with what you're talking about here um, with listening and listening. I I just see it as being, being there for others and being a refuge for others to be, to be heard and to be seen. Uh, Maybe you can comment on that or it's just, I don't know if that even makes sense or not. Um, Um, I connected up with Liam you and I are from the same school Sati Center for Buddhist Studies of course that makes sense to me here's the here's the um, the rub how long does it take for to be perceived as a refuge and I'll leave it at that Okay, but thank you. Thank you. Wow. Thank you, Io. <laughs> Is there anything else you'd like to say? <laughs> I didn't mean to repeat that. <laughs> Bef- before we before we finish up our hour here, is there anything else? Just lots of gratitude. Thank you. Thank you all. 
Thank you. And, and gratitude to you too. Thank you for sharing your perspective, your the wisdom of your practice. And you have you have a way of speaking from your heart, Ayo, that is so impactful for me every time. So thank you. I, I feel moved. Um, and thank you all for engaging today and, and bringing yourselves forward and sharing. Um, I think it really, really made this session wonderful. Um, this, this speaker series uh, is supported by donations. Um, so I'm going to just put a little link in the chat. Um, if you are able to make a donation today, there's a link that just went up in the chat so you can click through. Um, thank you, everybody. I am going to invite and ask the, the current students of the in-person and online Buddhist chaplaincy programs to stay on the call. And to everybody else, um, we'll say goodbye for now. And our next uh, speaker series event will be on December 16th. And we will be welcoming Renshin Bunce on that day. And there'll be more details to follow about that. So thank you, everybody.